Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Good morning, y'all. Good morning, Nia. Good morning. Um, how are y'all today? Uh, we're, uh, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> I, I'm very good. Yay. Okay, so um, listeners, once again, I'm not speaking to Augie clearly uh, alone since you've heard a second voice. That would be Bill Newman. And I also don't use y'all referring to one person because I'm from the South and I understand what y'all means. So, um, which she said bitterly because she watches movies all the time and points that out. You know, that's not singular, right? Uh, so anyway, we've invited Bill Newman back because he's been to all the presidential libraries on the earth and <laughs> more or less, give or take. And, uh, and we have, we have questions about going to a presidential library. So thank you so much for coming today, Bill, and answering those. No, oh, thank you for bringing me in. So Bill, how many library, uh, presidential libraries have you been to? Okay. Uh, I, let me, I, I got to run through the Oh, you knew this question was coming. Come on, dude. Uh, yeah, I, I never count. Uh, so uh, someone tally this up. Okay, Eisenhower, okay. Uh, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, and Clinton. So what do you got there? One, nine. two, three, four, nine. five, six, seven, eight, nine. Wow. How many are there total? Uh, well, Who are actually, you missing? There, there are the National Archives libraries, and then there are all the other libraries, which, is, which, are, uh, which have documents, but they aren't necessarily formally in the National Archives system. So the National Archives uh, system, I guess it starts with Hoover. Okay. On, and then uh, not sure what's happening with, with uh, Trump or how, how that's going to work, because it's still too early in the process and they're sort of negotiating that. Uh, but uh, some of Wilson's is in Stanton. Uh, Virginia, close by, about an hour and a half away. Oh, okay. So I can go to one pretty easily. Can I go to one? Can regular humans go to the library, or do you have to be doing big, gianty, researchy things? Uh, anybody can go. Yeah, anybody can go. It's great. And uh, you know, when I'm there doing the kind of research that, that I like to do, there are people who come in and say, uh, you know, my grandfather met Lyndon Johnson in 1966, and I know there was a picture of him with the president, and I don't have it, but it's got to be somewhere in the library, and the archivist will say, okay, well, let's track that down. <gasps> that's wonderful. I mean, that's a really cool use of that, of, of presidential library. I'm not saying that what you use them for is not cool. Sorry, that didn't come out right. <laughs> Okay, that was a goofball moment. Sorry about that. Um, hey, there's something useful about presidential libraries besides <laughs> all that stuff that you do. <laughs> so, okay, wait. So first of all, does it cost money to go to a presidential library? Uh, no, not at all. It's uh, to go into the museum, you pay a regular museum fee, but if you want to do research, that's no cost at all. All, all that information belongs to we, the taxpayers. So are those buildings together like in, are most presidential libraries in a bigger building that's got the museum and the presidential library and whatever, or are they separate entities within a larger complex? Most of them are together. 
uh, the exceptions, uh, the Ford Library, the, uh, the library is uh, on the campus of the University of Michigan and the museum is in Grand Rapids. A bit distant. Yeah, so, which was disappointing to me because I wanted to get like a Gerald Ford t-shirt and drive, I don't know, two and a half hours or so. So I couldn't do that. And Obama's also doing it differently in that he's having his, I guess, a, a center or foundation, and then all his actual records are going to be at the National Archives. Now, Bill, oh, okay. uh, uh, Nia talked about the, the, the user experience. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, who pays for these libra libraries to be built and then to hire the staff to go ahead and organize the materials um, and uh, you know help out researchers and the public. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, because you know, uh, uh, you know, does Congress allocate money for this, or uh, do the uh, presidents or um, their supporters have to go ahead and uh, fundraise uh, uh, for the creation of these libraries? So the creation. Of a building and things like that. You actually have private foundations yeah. that do that, but the materials are organized and managed and maintained by people from the National Archives. Okay, so you know the so the uh, and that's by federal law, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the uh, there are laws that uh, actually regulate uh, what presidents can do with their materials once they leave office. <laughs> right. And once and while they're still in office. Yeah, there you go. So you write a memo. And that after you finish writing that memo, that memo belongs to the American public. And so you don't throw it away. You don't delete the email. This is part of the record. That's it. So, there's so you send an email to the chief of staff saying, you, you know that flunky who just dropped off papers into my office and they copped an attitude? I want them fired. That goes as part of the record in the that national. Is part of the record. <laughs> <laughs> what what things do constitute part of the record? In seriousness, like if you send your secretary an email saying, "So for lunch, I want a turkey sandwich and I want a you know diet Pepsi," and then not that we promote diet Pepsi, but anyway, um, but uh, no diet Coke, right? Diet Coke was the pre was President Trump's I think button on his desk. Bring me a diet Coke. But anyway. I assume things like that don't are not considered part of the presidential. Pa okay, wait. Let me back up. Mm -hmm. At the library, we have what's called the presidential papers, mm -hmm. but they seem to be sort of the official. When I glance through them, and I will admit, I have never read any one any full volume of any of the president's papers, um, but we have them back to Hoover in print and bound. Um, the I'm assuming that when they mean that, they just mean things like official memorandum and and sort of speech, texts from speeches and proclamations and that sort of thing. They don't actually mean your lunch order from Papa John's, right? Like they're not, or do they mean that okay. in the presidential so, library? So there, there are different things. So uh, you mentioned the presidential papers that are in the library. So those are the public papers of the president. Yeah, we have those. At VCU. It's all the public stuff. Right. At the library, you have basically the documentary record of what the president and everyone else in the executive branch, well, certain parts of the executive branch are, are doing. 
right, the time. So right now, my guess is if you are, are an official, and um, in particular, if you're an official who's uh, appointed by the, the Senate, so you're a line officer, but even if you're a staff officer with, you know, you've got assistance to the president for X, Y, and Z. Right now, if you send an email that's saying, here's what I want for lunch, that doesn't get deleted, as far as I can tell right now. I have, uh, in the only uh, administration that I've done research on where there's a big email record is the Clinton administration. And I found, you know, they, when what you get is imagine a printout of all the email. <laughs> that, that you read. Can I just say that would be terrible? <laughs> yeah. Like, because imagine the gossip that's in there and the personal. It's hysterical. <laughs> so when I was at the, the Clinton Library, I'm sitting there reading. And of course, there's an archivist, you know, sitting at the, the table on the other side of the room watching everything that I'm doing because of making sure that I'm not destroying any records or ruining anything or, or folding the pages wrong or, or things like that. There's all these procedures there. And at times, I just burst out laughing and was looking at me and I, I'm like, do you want me to tell you? And a couple of times it's like, yeah, what did you see? So I go up and I say, come here. And they come over and I show them and I said, okay, so what is that about? And I said, oh, you got to go to like three pages down and you'll see what they're referring to. And they're saying unflattering things about senators or members of the House of Representatives. And it's, it's there. So that's email, right? Mm -hmm. But um I'm assuming in the days before email, I know listeners, there were actually days before email um, for the younger listeners in the crowd. So uh, would that have included notes and memos and post-its and that sort of things that just were hanging around? So you didn't get rid of any piece of paper. You're not supposed to get rid of any piece of paper. Now I assume that lunch orders and things like that, you know, people just go, okay, that's fine. We can get rid of that. But occasionally that kind of stuff uh, gets in there. Doodles get in there, right? You've got the legal pad and you're taking notes, minutes of a meeting. And then there are, you know, doodles like in the side <laughs> of the page. Uh, Colin Powell did great doodles during National Security Council meetings when he was National Security Advisor. And I always thought it was interesting. And this is the Reagan administration. I'm going through the documents and I'm going through Powell's minutes of NSC meetings and they're phenomenal. You just see how brilliant the guy was. When you look at the minutes and how he's explaining things and how uh, just the sophistication of the arguments that he's presenting. And then you got to the point where uh, the 1988 election happened, right? And now he's the lame duck on all this stuff. And then it just turns into lots of doodles and drawings. <laughs> and it's just like, I'm ready, so ready to be out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so that's all in these legal pads. I'm looking at I'm looking at the actual legal pad and there's you know, there's a picture of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a lot of 3D boxes and things. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um I would hate to see what my notes would look like if I were in one of those meetings. <clears throat> but I do have a question about redaction. So let's just pretend that in that meeting with Colin Powell and a bunch of other people, somebody's phone number got mentioned to the group and he noted it on the piece of paper to try to like, that's who we should call for, I, I don't know, whatever reason, some innocuous reason. I'm not talking about 
phone numbers for hookers, although I feel certain that those are somewhere in the records for some people. Um, but how, are they redacted? Okay, so they're not, so people's private information who aren't in the government, how, how is that handled when it's part of the governmental record? Okay, so they've got, there's several laws related to all this and how they work it. So you've got, uh, for the stuff that I deal with, so I usually deal with classified stuff uh, or information that was classified uh, and it's classified for 25 years unless someone wants to declassify it earlier. But it's, the idea is there would be an automatic declassification of everything after 25 years, except in a series of categories. And actually, uh, preparing for, for this, I finally learned what the categories are because I remember <laughs> doing research and you'll see, right? You'll see a, a piece of paper, a, a printout, or a memo, and there'll be a part of it that's either blacked out or it's just, uh, you know, it's whited out. It's just, it's just gone. And what you'll see is uh, like a little number next to it that'll say 25x1 or 25x4, and there are nine nine exemption from declassification categories. So now I actually know what those things mean. So when next time I go to the library, I can say, ah, that's why they're keeping this classified, which is interesting because it tells me something about what that information is. Yeah, what are the, what the categories? Uh, well, well, Bill, are you talking about the exemptions listed um, uh, in the Freedom of Information Act? Uh, these are, uh, they're part of Executive Order 13526. Who was, uh, in that executive order was issued by which president? Uh, this is Obama's, 2009. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. And, and does that executive order list the law or the section of the Constitution that it's based on? It is. I've got it right here. Title 44, U.S. Code Title 44, Chapter 21 and Chapter 22. Title 44, you said. Mm -hmm. Public right. printing documents. And then NARA is Chapter 21 and Presidential Records is Chapter 22. And the executive order is 13526? Uh, yes. Is that what I just said? Yes. <laughs> okay. yes. uh, sorry. Uh, the only reason I'm asking is because we'll, we'll link that on the research guide so that people can look at it um, uh, if, if they would like to look at it. But I'm curious to know what the nine, what the nine categories are. They make sense, right? Um, Revealing the identity of a confidential human source, human intelligence source, racial relationship with intelligence or security service, right? Something like that. Uh, revealing information that would assist in the development, production, or use of weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> Here's the plans for an atomic bomb. Uh, yeah, we probably want to feel free to download. Feel free to download and use at will. You can only okay. do that on the internet, but not in presidential records. Uh, <laughs> Of information that would impair U.S. cryptologic systems or activities, uh, information that would impair the application of state-of-the-art technology with the U.S. weapon system, uh, reveal formally named or numbered U.S. military war plans that remain in effect, uh, and here's where it starts to get interesting: reveal formal, excuse me, reveal information including foreign government information. So most of the stuff that I find that's still classified is because it has to do with U.S. ties to another country. 
Oh, I see. Which are we got there. this information from Israel. We got this information from the UK. Right. And we don't want people to, we don't want people on the other side to know that they know. Well, Nia, think about, right. for instance, some of the critiques of uh, uh, President Trump's uh, press conferences or tweets where it looked like he was telling the world where the United States got intelligence in regards to what you know, the Iranians were doing, the Chinese were doing, et cetera, oh, et cetera. at one point he confirmed we got information from Israel. And yeah, right? my I mean, arms started to flail because I'm like, we don't confirm where we get anything. Like, you just put Israeli spies in danger because right now the now somebody knows who to be looking for, right? Like, And if we can't keep a secret, then those other countries are going to want to go ahead and disclose their intelligence to us which means right. our job at collecting intelligence for U.S. national security purposes got that much tougher, right? Mm -hmm. That much more difficult. Right. Yeah. yeah. We neither confirm nor deny that there are other countries in the world and that we talk. <laughs> right. That's what we should be saying. And, and some of it is that we may have automatic declass declassification after 25 years, but another country may have automatic declassification after 35 years. Okay. And the conversation that I would like to see is between someone from the United States and someone from that other government. Okay. So, uh, got a couple more. Uh, yeah, we've got uh, reveal information that would seriously impair current national security emergency preparedness plans or current vulnerabilities of systems, installations, or infrastructure. So they're all pretty. Here's how you break into our nuclear plants. Yeah, or or, or <laughs> here's where our uh, electrical grid is deficient or weak or vulnerable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, feel right? free to knock down that part. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and the last one is violate a statute, treaty, or international agreement that does not permit the automatic or unilateral declassification of information at 25 years. So there's that. We're working with another government or another institution that says we keep this stuff classified for longer. Now, the, but, Wait. But, but, the, but the critique here, Bill, is, and this is a critique that's often made of government agencies using uh, the exemptions in the Freedom of Information Act. Mm -hmm. do, presidential, do presidents rely, over-rely on these exemptions, mm -hmm. okay, um, because, you know, that's one of the critiques of FOIA, right? You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the exemptions are overused by federal agencies. Do White Houses do the same thing, okay? Yeah. Uh, particularly with potentially embarrassing information? <laughs> uh, well, see, I can go only with the national security stuff. So I don't know what happens on the, the domestic, domestic side. Yeah. But in the national security stuff, I found that it depends on the president. Depends on the administration. Okay, so give us an example of a president um, who was quite willing to um, uh, disclose warts and all? Uh, Clinton. Clinton really? was, uh, when, when he left office, uh, they actually went through uh, particularly information on Bosnia and even Rwanda, which you could say, boy, there are a lot of warts related to U.S. policy in Rwanda. And the Clinton administration went through that stuff and they started declassifying everything that they could very quickly. So you have things uh, from the Clinton administration 
where you've got a fantastic documentary record right now, whereas the Reagan administration, you're still waiting for this stuff to be declassified. So I, I put in about, I guess, over a thousand mandatory declassification requests for the Reagan administration. And the response I got back from them is that, yeah, we'll probably have an answer for you for all of these in 11 years. <laughs> what, they, what they gave me, which is why there's no Reagan case study in the book that I just wrote. <laughs> well, I mean, that's going to be next decade that you write that. Like, I mean, but, but that's funny because uh, uh, in an upcoming uh, uh, podcast episode that we'll be posting, uh, uh, we focused on the Tower Commission um, as part of the Iran Contra affair, right? Um, and in one of the the huge criticisms of the Tower Commission was, first of all, they had very limited ability to compel people to provide testimony and evidence, but also <laughs> the Reagan administration just didn't want to turn stuff over, right? Yeah. I mean, they openly were like, yeah, that's classified. We can't go, we can't tell you, right? Yeah, that, that's fascinating. Okay, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, Nia, you had a point. No, no, I actually had a question. So, all right, I know this is going to sound convoluted, but I think if, if I were a listener, and I am a listener, this is what I would want to know, which mm -hmm. is, so you get there and you're looking through documents, and it's clear that something's missing, right? It's clear that either it's redacted within an inch of its existence and you get of, the, and, if, Arver, all right, and that's the only thing on the page, and you're like, okay, that's not good. You then put in a FOIA for that, and that's a Freedom of Information Act request, which goes to, like, if you're at the presidential library, does it go to the presidential library, or does it go to the agency that would have, that would have created that document? Because I'm assuming that what's in the presidential papers are a bunch of the little Augie uh, helped us understand that there are 10,484 million offices in the executive office of the president, right? Like there's, everything is under that office. So like, do they have different rules within that? Or is that is that one rule and does it come out of the library or does it come out of an agency? The answer is actually less convoluted. Oh, good. Because the it, question was terrible. Sorry. It really, it's really cool the way that they, they do this. And part of it tells you something about how uh, transparent a whole lot of people want the United States government to be. So what they do is, uh, let's say someone does a, a FOIA. Or let's say I do a, a, a FOIA Freedom of Information Act request on uh, like uh, Joe Biden's uh, national security uh, I forget what he's calling them now, uh, his memorandum on, on how to structure the, uh, the National Security Council. I can't remember if he's National Security Presidential Mem Memorandum or not. They, uh, usually Democrats start with P and Republicans start with N, but Biden started his National Security Directive series with N, and that has destroyed my entire brain. I am no longer <laughs> a function because one of the core belief systems of my life has now been rearranged. Um, but let's say I submitted a FOIA for that. What will happen is, is you'll have people who are in charge of processing that within the National Security Council staff. And they'll go ahead and they'll find every document related to that. You know, somebody writes a memo that says, uh, you know, I saw the draft uh, change um, 
in paragraph five, change must to shall. That's, that's a memo, that's a record. And each one of those memos, every single piece of paper will be on a list, right? That comes from the FOIA. So they don't necessarily have to let you see the document, but they have to let you know the existence of the document. Aha. And then what happens is at the, uh, if, if the Biden library is a, a hands-on paper library, there'll be a box that'll say national security directives and there'll be a folder that'll say, you know, national security president, presidential memorandum, is it one or I think it's two. Uh, and in that folder will be, in theory, everything is declassified will be in that folder and it might be three or four different folders, you know, folder one, folder two, folder three, all of this is big pile. And if anything is not in that folder because it's been exempted from declassification, you know it because there's an exemption sheet in the front that says these are the documents that are missing. So you open up that folder at the library and there's this pink piece of paper and it's you know, one, two, three, four, five, it's listed you know, 40 different memos and one, you know, you'll see the title and there it'll be like sitting right there. Two, it's not there because it says you know, exempted and it tells you why it's exempted and you know that's not there. Sometimes it's actually even a, a pink piece of paper as a placeholder that says, this is where that memo would be, but it's been exempted. And so, but they still give you the title of that memo. Most of the time, there are some that don't okay. have the title. But, but, but generally also, speaking, you would know what you're missing. <laughs> right. And, well, no, it, it, yeah, because, it, it, and I'll give you an example on the domestic side, right? Bill's talking to us about national security memorandums within a particular presidential administration, right? Think guys, when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court, okay? He at one point, okay, worked in the Bush 43 White House, okay? He was the chief, okay? Uh, he was, uh, uh, he reported directly to the president. The Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee, okay, made requests for all memorandums that Brett Kavanaugh wrote, okay, when he reported directly to President 43, because they were hoping to find dirt, okay, so that they could go ahead and not confirm him to the Supreme Court. And what came out was, you know, the list that Bill just described there were certain memos, okay, that were exempted. And the Democrats wanted those memos, right? Because they were like, if they're exempted, there has to be some good stuff in there, right? There has to be some juicy stuff that either embarrasses Kavanaugh or would embarrass Bush 43. But, okay, it had already been decided those were exempt, right? So we knew they existed. We just couldn't read them. <laughs> well, but I would like to ask though, I'm assuming that a lot of times what's in those memos, in fact, is not particularly juicy, but is protecting. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Some, some I mean, it, person it, 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 or operation or. 
yeah, Bill, something I mean, Bill, like that, yeah. right? Like what yeah. you were saying before, that just because things are exempted doesn't mean they're particularly juicy. My guess is that if you got a bunch of memos that had been exempted, you'd fall asleep reading them because they're not actually all that exciting. They're detailed stuff about a particular operation that's, you know, and detailed at the level that unless you're really a, a policy wonk or a or a an operations wonk, I should say, you wouldn't care. You don't care about the time of day that something arrives at a certain port and then will be picked up by a guy named Bob and taken to another, you know, like you don't care about any of that because you don't know any of the players and that kind of level of detail isn't important. Sometimes the, the reason the memo is, is still classified is because of who's in the room, which may be in the memo. Oh. Nothing that's said. In the memo is interesting. It was interesting, but the fact that someone's in the room. Now, oh, I, that was the day we all got lunch with Yasser Arafat. Wait, what? Yasser Arafat was in the room? Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. That changes you know, everything. It could be more interesting than that. It's, it's the, often, I think, the level of staff people, at least national security stuff, the level of staff people who may be in the room. That oh, so Colin Powell may have been in the room. In the room, right. Uh, here's I, I want to let me finish up because I think this is the next question of the key question. So something may be exempted from declassification, right? You you open up that folder and you look at that that pink cover sheet and you're saying I want to see this memo, right? Well then you put in a mandatory declassification request, and mandatory meaning I'm a citizen of the United States, I want that memo reviewed to see if it can be declassified. And that's mandatory. That's the law, and it has to be reviewed. So I've done thousands of those, and like over the past uh, six or seven years, like every few, I come in like once every two months. I'll get an email, or I'll get, depending which library, I'll get an actual surface mail letter that will say, "Here's the outcome of." this particular memo that you asked about, and sometimes it'll be full declassification or declassification with some redaction. In some cases, it's been, nope, sorry, not gonna happen. And so for a whole bunch of librarians around the United States, you're annoying, Bill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, wait, but that goes back to my question. So it, it, it's in the... <laughs> Um, it's in that we're we love all of our patrons. Librarians <laughs> love all of our patrons. But you don't. We're not annoyed them. by them. We just have a. We just had another mandatory declassification. And request. we love those, and we can't wait to find out what the answer is. <clears throat> From that political um, scientist at VCU. <laughs> he sure okay. does want this. This, this information. Could he okay, just get his book published so we could <laughs> like move on? I'll send him a copy of the book. I'll just. <laughs> yeah, I'll trade you. Um, so, but the mandatory declassification request, the librarian isn't determining that. The issuing right. agency is determining that, right? Mm -hmm. Or the issuing office or the office of the president or someone. Like what about it's the not national? Because I'll it, be honest with you, if you asked me for something, I'd just hand it over, right? Because I'm is that it the guy. national is it the national archives bill that has to makes that decision? Um, so it's gonna go back to the agency. 
that did the oh, okay. classification and every agency has their own shop that decides those types of things. Um, and there's also um, in that executive order, they created a, uh, a national, I can't remember the exact name of it, a national declassification center. That's the name. I'm blowing all my names today. All the uh, Biden's, for instance, memos are national security memorandum. Um, but there actually was created a, uh, an actual center to try to, to streamline the process so that individual agencies can't just sort of bury requests. Which I'm going to say, I, my experience with FOIAs is that almost always the first answer is no. Mm -hmm. Like they lead with no, and then you kind of have to shove them to yes, because either they're, they're respecting the original person who said, classify this, right, for whatever reason, or they're, they've got so many requests that they're just buried and, they're, and they want to weed out the people who are casually asking versus the people who are really doing research and really want to know. Um, right. I'm assuming that there's some of that. And I don't like that gatekeeping aspect, but I also understand that for some of the materials in there, especially when human sources could be affected slash destroyed because of that that you would definitely want to make sure that those people were protected mm -hmm. um but is your experience been okay in your mandatory declassification requests are you mostly winning or mostly losing um, or are you 50 50 at this point well what i've got is uh, with the uh, i mean i'm well, let me back over a second. You issue the mandatory declassification request. You ask for it. So then you say to people, when will I get an answer about this? <laughs> and they say, what's your life expectancy again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. So, you know, if, if I've submitted a few thousand in particular to uh, Carter and Reagan, where I was doing some research, uh, I say I've gotten maybe 30. Wow. At this point. And I, I'd say we're into four or five years into some of this stuff. And part of that actually is uh, cutting back on the resources to do declassification. Right? That's one. Oh, well, if you're going to trim, I guess. Okay. One way to slow the whole thing down is to say we're going to have fewer people dealing with this. And a lot of this stuff has become really, really hard. Uh, and I'll, I'll connect it to the polarization of the United States. A lot of this stuff has, has become really hard to do because of the polarization. Because I've looked at the list of FOIA requests, for instance, for the uh, George W. Bush administration. So you can actually go online and see a list of all the FOIA requests. And the number of FOIA requests that are asking for information about Hillary Clinton's dealings with Whitewater and Hillary Clinton's dealings with child sex trafficking and all this stuff, which people have to go and, and say, that doesn't exist. You know, there's nothing there, but we've got to go and see if there's anything related to that there. So everybody's looking for dirt on everybody else. And that's taken up a huge amount of time for, that could be done for a legitimate research. That's, um makes me sad. I should say, because I don't, well, and one of those answers should be enough 
there is no material here with Hillary Clinton and Whitewater beyond these 10 things that we've given that we've that we've made publicly available or at least the titles of publicly available quit asking like the, but i assume that they have to go look each time they get a request they can't just say i know that doesn't exist because something may have at, been added to the archive or right like they as a person who does research right for people in libraries i can't just say oh somebody asked me about that last year and there weren't any there wasn't any academic work published on it because in the meantime something may have been published just like in the meantime yeah. something may have come unclassified so each time they get that request they have to go look even if they're pretty sure it's not going to be in there so that's that's super frustrating because it does take up an enormous amount of resources that um, that if we stopped being gotcha culture and we stopped being sort of this idea of I want to find dirt on people, mm-hmm. then I mean, because the reality is if you've lived more than 10 minutes, there's probably dirt on you in some way. Well, yeah, it, it, in, and also depending too, on how people view dirt, you know, like. It, 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 and look at the impact on uh, a research process, right? You know, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're making these requests to declassify material, you're not looking for gotcha material about President Carter or President Reagan, right? You are actually researching a phenomenon okay, that was important in the history of the United States foreign policy making, right? Right. I mean, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Yep, you no know, we're, we're, here. just uh, the, the yeah. boring record of how decisions are made. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, we're trying to understand how, okay, two different or multiple different presidential administrations were making decisions in one of the, you know, most important elements of international politics in the second half of the 20th century, right? So you're trying to get that information. You're not getting it because you're like, aha. I'm writing Carter, a gossip tome on- you know, Carter did this or aha, the Reagan administration was, you know, chock full of, you know, you know, blah, blah, blahs. No, I mean, you're trying, you're trying to go ahead and understand a phenomenon, okay? Um, and, you know, and, and part of that research process is a curiosity, right? Yeah. You know, we're trying to understand how our government works when our government was one of two superpowers in the world. Well, and we're also trying to, we're trying to compare presidents honestly, Right. Instead of comparing them with surface things, we're actually trying to compare their thought process and their advisory process, because if we can figure out what works best, we can say to presidents, here's how you might want to set things up in the future, depending on what your personality type is or how you learn best or whatever, instead of every president starting more or less from scratch. Right, because the record restarts with each president, even if that person has been vice president, you were not president. There were things that happened when you were not in the room. And now the learning curve is incredibly steep. And, and we're asking people to do that, especially 
in a world that is so interrelated and slow, so globalized, that is an amazingly hard thing to do. And if we could figure out, hey, it looks like this is a really good sort of best practice way to kind of approach these things, then we could give a president a leg up on, on that starting area and and instead what we've got because we're polarized is nobody wants to tell anybody anything about how to do anything right and and that's (laughs) and and you know that's incredibly unfortunate i'm i i think that it's too bad that we don't have you know how in a lot of committees and organizations you have a chair and then you have a chair elect and that person like shadows the person doing the job for a year so that they they can say dude that is a terrible way to go about that or that's brilliant i'm totally going to keep doing it that way because that really works like wouldn't it be neat if we had our elections one year backwards so that a president stayed on an extra year and the vice president was actually in that last year was actually the president elect and they got to sit in and learn how to, I mean, if it works for organizations like regular organizations, one would think it would work for the federal government. Yeah, and in the national security area, uh, it used to work that way in which you had a lot of organizational memory. So you may have had people who worked for, for instance, I just did uh, research on Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And you had people who worked for Eisenhower who stayed on and worked for Kennedy. And people worked for Johnson who stayed on and worked for Nixon. And the idea was, you know, you're smart, you're a national security professional, just because we have a new president in office doesn't mean that U.S. national security interests instantly change, because right. you weren't thinking along the lines of the polarization, and who's my enemy, because the national security profession, in theory, the people who are sort of in and outers, uh, maybe in academia or think tanks, and go back in and work for defense or state or the NSC staff, those people are professionals. Right? That's the thinking about them. So they can work for a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah, and, 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 and by the way, this actually ties back to uh, uh, a, a pretty foundational concept um, in the modern U.S. administrative state, uh, Nia, that we've talked about in other podcast episodes, which was Woodrow Wilson's idea that you uh, separate politics from administration. Administration right. would be chock full of neutrally competent bureaucrats um, who uh, could and would be willing to implement whatever policy was created by elected officials. It didn't matter if it was a Democratic president, a Republican president. It didn't matter who was running the State Department, who was the appointed secretary. Um, you know, you had a cadre of you know, well-trained, well-educated, seasoned bureaucrats who would implement policy, okay? We don't have that anymore, right? Yeah, okay? I, I mean, I think... you, know, you know, presidents come into office, okay? I mean, we saw this with Trump. We're now seeing it with Biden, okay? Right. You, know, we're, you know, we're gutting advisory boards every four years for the EPA, um, Homeland Security, um, Postmaster uh, General. Yeah, it, it, it's. And it, 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 again, guys, 
you know, Nia, you pointed this out, Bill just mentioned this, right? Um, doing federal government work is difficult. It's complex. You need that institutional history. Um, uh, listeners, you know, if you wanna know how important transition is in institutional memory, read Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, right? Okay, um, and, and, and that's what gets lost. But let's get back to the libraries, okay? Uh, um, and, and, and I know we only have a few more minutes, right, Nia? How are we doing on time? Um, we only have a few more minutes. Okay, Although so- if, if Bill would stay with us with another episode, because there's lots more questions. Okay, but okay, I, I, I got two questions for you, Bill, okay? okay. Um, what, what, in your estimation, uh, share with us your most unusual presidential library experience. Okay, so uh, I'll tell you about two folders. Two folders. Two folders, which were hysterical. And I have pictures of them. So I, I can, I can oh. show them to you. Okay, I'm going to ask you that question in a little bit, if it's okay. Because I want to know the exact process of that. Oh, by, okay. the way, by the way, Nia, that's the title for the podcast episode. Two folders. Two folders. <laughs> okay. Two okay. folders. Okay. <laughs> Bill Newman visiting presidential libraries. Okay. The, the first folder was one I found at Eisenhower Library. And it was, I can't remember what box it was in, but actually I can look it up to see what box it was in. But it was declassified material related to national security issues. And it was a folder and it just had a, a sticker on the tab inside the folder. And it just said, banana. Okay, so I assume it had something to do with the coup in Guatemala, uh, <laughs> fifty-four, which is a banana, and it was empty. So I, I thought gave that you was an great. empty folder. Empty, right? Did well, they know it was empty, or did you say, "Has this been stolen?" Oh no, that just means that uh, when you've got those documents, for instance, you you may have an entire folder which has been exempted, but the folder is still inside the box. So when you, if you do a FOIA request and they will put together boxes of all these documents and if none of this stuff is declassified, and I've done this before where I've asked for 18 boxes worth of information and I will get 18 boxes filled with empty folders. <laughs> Hundreds of empty folders and you'll just go through them and through them because maybe there's some document in wow. there. They've already blown my one o'clock pull from the archives so they can't give me another 18 boxes until three o'clock. So I'm stuck with these 18 boxes. So you just go through them. Okay. And you, and you look at the titles and actually the titles tell you something because now you know, okay, I know what's going to be here. You know, Someday. Many years down the line. <laughs> uh, so, and the other folder was from the Carter administration and it was a folder related to the Paperwork Reduction Act. <gasps> that is Augie's favorite act right? ever. He can work show. it into an episode. You have just made his day. Oh he my goodness. That into an episode. Oh. He, is, he is a happy, happy man. I gotta send you the picture because it was this giant folder overstuffed with paper that was disorganized and none of it was lined up and it was just all sticking out all over the box. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
totally did this on purpose. Come on. Oh, yeah. That, that's the federal government. Okay. That's really? hard. Right? Can a we box? actually have that picture for the for the guide? Would you be willing to let us put that up on the guide? Oh, sure. Because that's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that Paperwork in. reduction. See this folder. <laughs> Talk full of disorganized, okay, paper. <laughs> About the awesome. paperwork paperwork reduction act. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it's lined up, nice and neat, so you know it's it's orderly, and you open up the folder, and it's all you know everything's lined up. But this one was just a, a disaster. <laughs> oh, that had to be that had to be the librarian having a good time, don't you think? Just for a minute, they're like, "Okay, this is pretty funny. Let me do it in this way. I'm not going to destroy anything or move anything, but." but I am going to make it a little bit messy for him. Oh, that's, you that's just made, great. You just made my day, Bill. That oh is a goodness. wonderful, that is a wonderful way to end this episode. Thank you. Cause that's <laughs> marvelous. <laughs> um, would you be willing to, to stay with us for another episode? Oh uh, yeah, sure. Wonderful. Okay. Well then we'll wrap up this one and we'll be back uh, next week with our second episode. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.